makes me think of, uh, turn to Psalm 83. Psalm 83 tonight. We finished, finally, the other one we were in, so we're picking up on a new one tonight. The Psalm of Asaph. And before we read it, uh, just consider what Paul said in 2 Timothy 3, 1 and 2. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. The King James says perilous times. And then he tells us why, and we'll just use one. For, peoples will be, for people will be lovers of self. Now what I heard on that video was people will be lovers of self. Had a baby, and you know, I went through nine months of pregnancy, and the baby's born, but I'm tired of it. My choice. My body, my choice. And that one time when that lady, the, the interviewer said, even, you know, at two years old, she said, it will always be the woman's choice. Okay, think about that. And uh, lovers of self, lovers of self. Life is expendable. Life is something that can be done away with if it gets in the way of what I want to do and who I am. And uh, never mind about, of course, the child's uh, rights. And that's only one of the issues that we face today where we are literally harming our children, setting up the next generation and our nation for failure. And we see uh, bizarre and weird things coming about now. <clears throat> Let me put it this way. It's almost like the devil doesn't feel the need to hide or camouflage or cover up. So why is that? Well, the scripture does say as we get nearer the return of Christ that uh, the enemy is going to be angry because he knows his time is short. Okay, let's be optimistic and let's just say this is all coming because time is short and Jesus is coming back very soon. Boy, wouldn't that be a blessing. But it also, when we think about uh, this, it could be because the church has become so compromised, so weak, so ineffective, so uncommitted that the devil says, you're not even a factor to be dealt with anymore. And I have a sneaking suspicion that that's a bigger part of it than any of us would like to admit. We're divided. We can't stand on the Word of God and uh, all kinds of things that are going on. In fact, the Southern Baptist Convention is meeting this week in Anaheim, California, and uh, Saddleback Church, uh, Rick Warren's church, most people don't know, that is a Southern Baptist church. That is our largest Southern Baptist church. Well, he ordained three women to the ministry a couple of weeks ago. And our Baptist faith and message specifically says the office of pastor is for a biblically qualified man. Okay? That would mean that his church and his messengers should not have been seated or allowed to vote. And the credentials committee is just all agonized over that. And they first um, made a ruling that they would not be seated. Then they withdrew that and said, we need to study it. Okay, we need to study it. And here's what they're going to study. For the next year... They are directing the, I believe it's the executive committee, to study what a pastor is so we know how to rule on this. Does that sound vaguely familiar? When the most recent nominee for the Supreme Court was being questioned, 
Remember what she said? She was asked, what is a woman? She couldn't say because of the climate that we live in. And she made the statement, I'm not a, I'm not a biologist. I can't answer that. Now, isn't that silly? Isn't that ridiculous? And I want to say to the leaders of the Southern Baptist Convention, you have to study what a pastor is and where we stand. It's pretty clear. It's been that way for a long time. And the scripture is not ambiguous about this. Not at all. And so uh, I wanted to maybe write and post somewhere, you know, what is a pastor? Don't ask me. I'm not a biologist. I mean, how do I know what a man is or what a woman is or what the Bible means when it says that? I mean, we're living in those kind of times. And so the church is weak. We're divided. We're arguing over things that should be settled issues. And no wonder we don't have any power. No wonder our prayers are not uh, going past the ceiling, so to speak. No wonder that uh, our witness is not as powerful as it once was. All of this kind of stuff that goes on. And then you think about what is happening in churches. What's happening in individuals' lives. And sin that reigns. And people that are involved in secret sins. I may be talking to somebody tonight. And of course we all have sin. We all know that. But uh, that's the first place we run and hide. Well, everybody's a sinner. Well, we do know that there are different degrees of sin. Some sins in the Bible, even in the Old Testament, carried worse punishments than others. And uh, some sins are called iniquities or transgressions, and some are called abominations. And so uh, it could be that we're harboring some things in our lives that God says, I'm not going to bless that fellowship or that assembly or that church because of the secret sin that is hidden. And it makes me think of Joshua 7 when one man Achan sinned against the Lord and he hid his sin and the whole army paid the price for all of that. So it's important that all of us be clean. It's important that all of us be committed. And it's important that we rally to the cause. <clears throat> I think sometimes we are willing to fight in areas where the devil's not attacking. And uh, Luther, even back in the 1500s, said that if I'm fighting a battle where the devil isn't attacking, then I'm not effective no matter how loud I may profess that I am. And so we've got to fight where the devil's attacking, and we've got to stay current, and we've got to be brave, and we've got to um, act like adults, and uh, act like soldiers, and be good soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we've got to quit whining. A lot of people are whining. And uh, here's the thing. When we read Psalms like this, we've got to know that we've been warned about all of this. In the last days, perilous times will come, Paul said. Let me give you an illustration of it out of Psalm 83, and we'll read the first four verses. Okay, you ready? Do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. For behold, here's the reason for that prayer, your enemies make a tumult, and those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation that the name of Israel may be remembered no more. 
So whatever was going on here in this psalm that Asaph wrote, I believe it's the last one that he wrote, it was a time when Israel at least felt like their national identity and existence as a people was threatened and they're crying out to God. I don't think it takes much for us to look at the culture that we're in and say, we can kind of identify with that. We have people that would love to wipe us off and wipe us out and get rid of our influence and everything that we believe. And uh, now they are doing what the scripture says and talks about here. And the first thing that I would call your attention to, this would be point number one, the presumption of the world should cause us to pray. Is that practical enough? The presumption of the world should cause us to pray. Where'd you get that? The prayer that he prayed. Do not keep silent, O God. Look, if, if the people of God are noticing, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you acting? Do something, Lord, please. We are desperate here. Then I'm going to flip that coin over and I'm going to say that the lost world is looking around and they're saying, you know what? We were always told by our mama and by our grandma that this was wrong. And we did it, and God didn't do anything. Nothing happened. So what do they do? Stop there? No, they always go for more. They always get bolder, and they make this presumption that because God is silent, that he either doesn't exist, or he's powerless, or he doesn't care. Now, of course, nothing could be farther from the truth. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God sees everything that goes on and justice will come one day but Asaph is praying this Lord we need it not someday we need it now or everything you promised is going to crumble every covenant you made with Abraham and the covenant you made with David is going to mean nothing if the enemy is successful in what they do and as we face the times in which we live and the problems and the perils and all of the things that uh, the enemy wants to do to shut us up. In fact, it seems like you could take every liberal policy and every liberal, liberal argument against people like us and you could translate it this. I don't care what they say. The bottom line is they are saying, shut up. Now, my mama told me never to say that, but uh, that's what they're saying. Be quiet. We don't want to hear from you. And so they, in 1962, said you can no longer read the Bible in school. In 1963, they said you can no longer pray in school. I might have those backwards. I was little back then. And what were they doing when they said that? They were telling Christians, shut your mouths. We don't want to hear from you. And they were doing what this psalm said. They were wiping out the memory of us and our Judeo-Christian ethic, and the way that our country was founded, and the way that we were raised. And so uh, this is what is happening to them. Asaph says, this is it if you don't do something. This is it. And so the presumption of the enemy is, if God hasn't done anything to this point to stop us, then he's not going to do anything. We'll do whatever we want. And so he cries, do not keep silent, O God, and uh, do not hold your peace, and do not be still, O God. Do something, do something in this. And so um, Asaph 
is burdened about it. It reminds me of uh, a little bit of 1 Kings chapter 18. Um, it says, And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have uh, done all these things at your word. And you remember what happened after that. The fire fell and everybody knew it. Boy, there's a hunger in my heart that in our society, in our church, in our lives, in our family, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our grandchildren, that God would do something that would show that he is God and we are his people. But when that doesn't happen, just like in Elijah's day, Ahab and Jezebel thought they could do anything they wanted to do. Anytime they wanted to do it in any way, they wanted to do it. And that's the kind of time that we're living in now. Secondly, notice there's overwhelming boldness and confusion. And that is the enemy's strategy against us. Overwhelming boldness and confusion. You know, God's not the author of confusion. And so mo much of what goes on is such a contradiction. I heard uh, somebody on a podcast I listened to the other day. They played, uh, of all people, Barack, President Barack Obama saying that marriage is between one man and one woman and that he was not for same-sex marriage. Now, understand clearly, there is no such thing as same-sex marriage because it is not marriage. Okay? The Bible's very clear on that. And when there were questions about that, even the divorce issue, Jesus in Matthew 19 said, Have you not read that he who created them in the beginning created them male and female and said, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and the two shall become one flesh. And therefore what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Okay? What did he do? He said, If you want to know what God thinks and what it really is, just go back to Genesis and see how God made it. The way he made it is the way he wants it. The way that it's supposed to be. And it's interesting that people like Mr. Obama and Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and uh, they played uh, uh, President Bill Clinton saying essentially the same thing. Okay? Now, that's way back in the 90s. That's, you know, the old days. But uh, what Barack Obama said was... I don't know, not all that long ago, maybe 10 years or something like that. Look how fast it's changed. Say, so why are you bringing all of that up? Because it started off slow. It started off as kind of a joke, you know? <laughs> Nobody thinks that. Nobody would ever do that. And now all of a sudden, we're in a tsunami with all of this now. And we are drowning in all of it. And we look at this and say, what is going on? Well, it's the same thing that was happening here. The same thing that Asaph is talking about. I mean, look at verse 2. For behold, your enemies, they make a tumult. Okay? They're stirring things up big time is what that means. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. I want you to think about lifted up their head. What in the world does that mean? Okay. You and I are in a combat situation. We can be in Vietnam. We can be in Iraq. We can be wherever you want to be. And we have come up on the enemy. Okay? And we are down hiding behind cover. And then somebody says, look and see 
Look and see how many there are. Okay? And so you are thinking about that. Raising your head could be deadly, couldn't it? And so you raise your head and look ready to duck back down at a moment's notice. you got your helmet on and everything and you're looking over there. But you raise your head and nobody fires. What do you do? You say, man, it doesn't look like there's anybody out there. So you raise your head up and you're not as quick to take it down. And then this guy raises his head and this guy raises his head and this one raises their head. What is that a sign of? You're feeling pretty comfortable at that point. So when the enemy, the Lord's enemies, those who hate him, are raising up their heads, it means they're exposing themselves. They're not in the closet anymore. They're not hiding anymore. They're not trying to camouflage what they really think by their words. They're right out, straight out, open. Here I am, shoot at me. It's almost like a dare. And the Bible tells us here that they lift up their head, they're coming out of hiding in a battle, okay, and they make a tumult. Uh, I looked at several different translations. Some say they make an uproar. One translation says they growl, an intimidating animal-like growl. says uh, rage, some translate it. And uh, one even said it's a revolt. It's a revolt. And so they see what they don't like. They see what they're against. They see all the restraints. They feel safe, they feel comfortable, and then they revolt. They go into a rage. They're not happy people, in other words. I don't care what they say. Demons are not happy. The devil's not happy. He knows his time is short. And the people that follow him are not happy people. They're afraid. They want to do what they want to do. They don't want any opposition. They don't want anything to be questioned. They don't want anything to be logical. It's all about confusion. And so this is what Israel is seeing. Asaph is describing this. The enemies are all around Jerusalem. They're not even bothering to hide anymore. They're showing themselves. And Israel is in a panic. Because it doesn't seem as though God is hearing or God is doing anything. And this kind of reminds me of, uh, if you've heard uh, about Saul Alinsky and uh, his rules for radicals. It's kind of the strategy that he had. Or Cloward and Pibbins uh, teach this kind of thing where you come in and you overwhelm the system. Overwhelm the system. And everybody's like, what do we do and how do we handle all of this? You do that in the... Uh, uh, terms of welfare, just overwhelm all of it. You do it in terms of uh, immigration, just overwhelm everything. You do it in all that happens, that's part of their strategy so that we don't know what to do, and then they can remake it in whatever way they want. Well, that's happening in the churches as well. After a while, we don't know where we, st- we don't even know what a pastor is anymore. We're not real sure anyway. We're not sure what marriage is anymore. Some Christian people will affirm same-sex marriage. You can't do that and be biblical. All these things happen. We're not sure where our voice is. We're not sure what we're allowed to say. We're not sure what we're supposed to say. We're not sure if we're doing it the right way or not. 
And the Bible does say, let everything you do be done in love. So that's our guiding principle. But at the same time, we are supposed to be clear. We're supposed to be salt and light. If you'll turn in your Bibles to 2 Chronicles chapter 20, I want to read a story. And this is a story about Jehoshaphat and about his prayer. And many scholars think that this psalm that we're looking at is Asaph writing during this situation that is described in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So if you'll go ahead and open your Bibles there, 2 Chronicles 20. It says, after this, and if I, I practice some of these names, and I'll probably still stumble over some of them, but uh, you'll know what they mean. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites... And with them, some of the Muonites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom and from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Maazan, Tamar, that is, and in Gedi. I wish they just said that. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid. And he set his face to seek the Lord. And, here's how desperate, we, he, desperate he was, he proclaimed a fast. When's the last time you've fasted before the Lord? Proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said... O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it. And have built for you in it a sanctuary, talking about the temple, for your name. Saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine. By the way, he's making reference to the dedicatory prayer that Solomon prayed. We will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house. And cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now... Behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy, behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession. In other words, out of the land, just like we saw in that psalm, which you have given us to inherit. O oh, our God, Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. Ever felt like that? For our eyes are on you. Now meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon uh, Jehaziel the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph. This is why we think this is 
uh, relating to this psalm because Asaph wrote the psalm and it mentions him here, the son of Asaph. Okay? And um, let me get to the right place here. This is what happens when you uh, can't see. Okay, the Levite of the sons of Asaph in the midst of the assembly, and he said, Well, this is good news. Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours but God's. How do you spell relief? Not R-O-L-A-I-D-S. You remember that commercial? You spell relief by hearing that the battle is not yours. The battle is the Lord's. Who's responsible? It's God. We are to submit to Him. We are to seek Him. We are to surrender to Him. We are to be faithful to Him. But He's the one that fights the battle. Number three. Notice that the enemy works in coalition against God's people. One of the things that always amazes me is... God's people cannot get together and stay together to save their lives. There's always somebody mad. There's always somebody hurt. There's always somebody that betrays. There's always somebody that just flakes out. There's always something going on like that. And we kind of try to scramble to fill those positions. Have you ever noticed how the enemy can seem to get a bunch of people that don't even like each other and don't even agree uh, on most things? Except this one deal, we don't want God to rule over us and we don't want his people to be salt and light and restrained against us so we can get together and we can fight what is right. It's amazing how they can do that. And that's what they were doing here. These nations that were coming against Israel, they didn't necessarily like each other. And the king of Moab would probably like to have the land and the resources of one of these other nations that's coming against them. But not now. Not now. Why? Got to wipe out Israel. We're going to go after Judah. And we're going to get rid of them. And we're going to stop all this talk about there being just one God. We're going to stop all this talk about the Jews being the favored people of God. We're going to stop all of this stuff about a covenant and that they are the covenant people. And we're going to show them. So they peek up from behind a rock and nothing happens. They make their plans about what they're going to do and God doesn't do anything and neither does Judah. And so they get bold and they show themselves and they're making it clear we are going to attack you and we are going to attack you in such great numbers and from positions that you cannot defend and you are toast. So the Israelis look at that and they go, how do we stand against this? Probably ought to pray. There's an old story about a pastor that came into the office and said to his secretary, Mrs. Jones, there's nothing left to do but pray. And she said, oh no, has it come to that? That's the way Israel was. That's the way Judah was, pardon me. And that's the way we are so many times. Prayer and turning to God seems to be the last thing we do only when we can't do anything else. And we wonder why he's not blessing. And we wonder why we don't see more victory. We treat God as the last resort. When I've tried all my ways and everything I want to do, then maybe I'll turn to the Lord. <clears throat> Can you imagine? If you had been dating somebody and you uh, say you're a guy and you say, will you marry me? 
and your, uh, your girl said, you know what, I've got three other guys that I think are going to ask me too. But if it doesn't work out with those three, yeah. Yeah. Wouldn't you feel uh, special? Wouldn't you feel blessed? Wouldn't you, what would you do in that situation? And yet, that's a weak illustration of how we treat the Lord so many times. And we expect Him to come running with enthusiasm, with power, and with great blessing. Like He's finally going, oh, they like me. Oh, they finally want me. God is not that kind of a God. And until His people are willing to seek Him first, as Jesus said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added unto you. But we still want to play the world's game. We still want to do things our way. And only when it doesn't work, then we run to the Lord. And sometimes, sometimes God is gracious enough to say, well, you finally got it right and answer. He did in this case. But how much better would it be if we just walked with the Lord, if we were just faithful to Him, if we were being sanctified and growing in the Lord and making progress in our spiritual walk? What if we were living holy lives? What if we were totally committed to Him? What if every day we had our armor on and we were ready for battle? What if we were willing to take loving stands against sin and against what is evil? What if our prayer life was what it should be and our Bible study was what it should be? What if we were living the way we know instinctively that we ought to live do you think God might bless us even more and this is the sad indictment against God's people and so uh, the enemy works in coalition against God's people because it says they've taken crafty counsel not just counsel crafty counsel you know what they're doing they're being sneaky you know what they're doing they're being deceitful You know what they're doing? They're not showing everything that they've got. They've taken crafty counsel. You know, that makes me think of Ephesians chapter 6. It says we're supposed to put on the whole armor of God that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, one translation says. Another one says against the craftiness of the devil. I think the King James says the wiles of the devil. You ever heard of Wiley Coyote? What is somebody who is wily? They're tricky. They're planning. They're scheming. And this is what is happening. The people that are the enemies, they are counseling together. And the schemes are not what you would really think. Israel, Judah is at a point now to where they see this coming. And this is not really what they were prepared for because... The enemy was taking crafty counsel against your people. And they consulted together against your sheltered ones. ESV says treasured ones. In other words, they're not going to attack on a whim. What they plan is coming in craftiness. It'll be the kind of thing to where you will say, I never saw that coming. Never saw that coming. Where society will say, where is this coming from? Well, they're sneaky, they're crafty, and they're also very patient. They don't care if it takes them weeks, months, years, in some cases decades. Folks, all the stuff that we see going on now, the homosexuality, transgenderism, all of those kind of things, that didn't just happen recently. That's been going on for decades. In decades, it was just hidden. 
And they knew that they couldn't raise their heads in the 70s or they'd get shot down. But they're doing it now. See what I mean? And the enemy has been very patient. Now for us, we think, and you get a little bit of this in this psalm, if God doesn't do something now, we're toast. But what if God's strategy is just wait, just chill, just cool it. I'll do what I'm going to do when it's my time. But you rest in me and you trust in me. And we panic. I guess God's not going to answer this prayer. So we better do something. And that always gets us in trouble. But the enemy is very, very patient. Very patient. But when it happens, they're ready and they pounce. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the crafty schemes of the devil. Now, I think Paul is pretty clear there with his inference. You either have the armor on or you can't stand against their schemes. Okay? And sometimes we get a little tired. Well, the helmet's get a little hot and a little heavy. Maybe I could just take it off for a while. Ah, oh, my feet are aching. I'm going to take these shoes off for a while. You know, nothing seems to be happening. Let's just take these shoes off. And oh, the sword is getting heavy hanging on this belt. So I'll just take the belt and the sword off. And oh, you know, that cool air feels so good. And I've got this breastplate on. Maybe if I just loosened it up and let some air in there. I mean, think about all of the things. This shield, I'll just lay it down. I can get it whenever I need it. And all of a sudden you hear the sound of battle. What has to happen? Where my shoes go? Where, where are my shoes? Got to get my shoes on. Got to get them fastened up. Oh, somebody help me get this breastplate back on. And what do I do with my helmet? That's not my helmet. That's the wrong size. Where's my helmet? I mean, you're going to be a dead man if you fight like that. And so the psalmist is telling us here how the enemy works. Don't say you weren't warned. And number four, the ultimate goal of evil Erasing the memory of God, His Word, and His people. They hate you as much as they do God. Didn't Jesus tell us that? If they hated me, they're going to hate you. They're not going to like you, and you're not going to fit in with them, and you're never going to be cool enough for them. You're never going to put on a production that the world will go, Oh, oh, oh. Boy, that was great. We need more churches putting on more productions. I think our movies are cheesy. I think our music is lame. And they're always one step ahead of us when it comes to the culture. And so when we try to follow after the world and say, Oh, look at that. That is so cool. If we could just do that in the church, how, how different everything would be. And about the time we kind of get it, they laugh and they move on to something else. And they say, no, we're over here now. No, we're over here now. No, we're over here now. And instead of pursuing Christ, we're so busy copying the world. And it's like playing a game of whack-a-mole. You know what that is? Here I am. Here I am. Here I am. And we're going all over the place thinking that we're making progress and thinking that we're fighting the enemy and thinking that we're doing something good for the Lord. And that's why the Bible tells us we've got to keep our eyes on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And we're not very good at that. You're not. I'm not. And as a general rule, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not. That's why we have to be told. That's why we have to be taught. That's why we have to be warned. That's why we have to get knocked down every once in a while because we learn our lessons so many times the hard way. 
We think that everything else shows promise, politics, and all of those kind of things. That's where it's really at. No, it's not really where it's at. And we forget. And what is evil really trying to do? No matter what they say, they want to wipe you out. They want to wipe everything you stand for out. They want to wipe the word of the Lord out. They want God to be gone. Gone. And so it says in verse 4, They have said, Come... And let us cut them off from being a nation. Into the covenant, into those people, into that race, into the promises of God. Let's just wipe them out and make it look like they've never, ever been here. We'll clean up the crime scene, so to speak. That the name of Israel may be remembered no more. So they want to make God's people just a novelty. Oh, aren't they cute? I mean, you know, they don't really persecute the Amish much, do they? You know why? Because they're cute. Go, go see the buggies. Go see the horses and uh, buy a quilt. Buy a quilt. And that's what they want to do with you and me and all of our churches. Just make us a little novelty, a little museum, a relic of the ancient past. You know what? Uh, just for fun. It's Mother's Day. So go to church and, and uh, you, know, um, you know, sit there and think about what your grandma used to do when she went to church and then get back to whatever it is. Wasn't that cute? Wasn't that cool? Wasn't that something? Hmm. And uh, it's about like an Amish quilt. It's about all they really think about when they do it. They want to make us completely irrelevant. That's the strategy. And we've got to wake up to it. That's what they want to do. And they're trying to compromise us, water us down, get us to play their game by their rules, to follow after what they want to do, to let them define the roles of men and women and boys and girls, to let them tell us what's truth and what's not. And they're getting us to get, follow them, and they are setting the agenda and not the Word of God. I see all kinds of problems with that. I don't know about you. I see all kinds of problems with it. The Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, so they want to take our sword away. They want us to fight with an air sword while they have a real one, right? And they want us to live by our own way instead of the truth. And the belt that we put on that holds our sword is the belt of truth. Well, if there is no truth and we buy into all of that, then we don't know what's good, bad, right, or wrong, what's up or down. And, well, Isaiah said, What are those who call good evil and evil good? Light, darkness, and darkness, light. We're living in that time. And now, as churches, we're starting to kind of bite on all of that to our own um, peril. Okay? So uh, we, we want to um, think about, uh, I thought about this, the way that a uh, couple of summers ago, the way Antifa and uh, BLM, they were tearing down statues. And if you notice that in other countries that when somebody takes over, they tear down statues and all of that. And I got to thinking, that's what they want to do with our churches. That's what they want to do with our morality. That's what they want to do with our gospel. Just tear it down, trample it underfoot, get rid of it, and let us do what we want to do. And of course, the Lord builds His church, and He's not going to allow that to happen. But that's where they're headed, and that's what they want to do. They're not, they're not our friend. And so um, they want to remove all the memory and all reference to God. They've already done it in schools. And what they have done there, that's what they are wanting to do in all of society, even in your neighborhood and my neighborhood. They revise history and change it. 
And uh, these people are wanting to make it as though Israel never existed. Talk about revisionist history. Well, we're living in a time where the enemy is wanting to do all of that. Change everything and uh, don't be true about all of it. And uh, they don't want it to be seen that Israel ever occupied the land or ever worshipped Yahweh. And so uh, I'm thinking that the Christians today are like Samson in Judges 16, 19. Then she let him, she let him, she let him fall asleep on her lap and called a man to shave off the seven braids on his head. In this way, she made him helpless and his strength left him. I'm starting to see that in this world and in this culture, Delilah is saying to the church, just lay down, go to sleep. Want me to rub your neck? Yeah, it's okay. You're safe here while she's calling the barber. And we don't even know what's happening. And we don't even know where our power is. Because as Keith Green said in his song 40 plus years ago, the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. Delilah, she's had her way. Samson got up, and he didn't know that his power had left him. And he went after the Philistines just like he had done before. Look what happened. So I'm saying to you, to me, to all of us, we got to wake up. we got to wake up. we got to take this seriously. And we've got to go to battle, and we've got to go against the right enemy. So be encouraged, because our enemies... Or like this, in Job 8, 13 through 15, it says, Such are the paths of all who forget God. The hope of the godless shall perish. His confidence is severed, and his trust is a spider's web. He leans against his house, but it does not stand. He lays hold of it, but it does not endure. And it's time for us to realize we're the victors in Christ. We have truth. We have the power and the presence of Jesus Christ. We have the armor of God. We have the word of God. We have his wisdom. We've been warned. It's time for us to stand up. It's time for us to pray. And sometimes we say, oh, we need to have a good old-fashioned prayer meeting. And I'm going to say, that's not good enough. I'm not asking you to pray like you used to. I'm asking you to do this. The battle is so severe. I'm asking you to pray like never before. This is a new day. This is a new battle. This is a new time to fight. And it's time for the church to rise up as Christian soldiers. To rise up as adults, not children. And it's time for us to follow Jesus and to march to battle in the strength of and the victory of the Lord. Because the times, like they were in the days of Asaph and Jehoshaphat, are desperate, desperate. And the enemy is coming in like a flood. However, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes, please? Oh, Lord God, we see this psalm, 
And we know that was a real thing in the context is a real battle and a real enemy that Israel was facing. And we wouldn't dare take it out of context or simply try to spiritualize it. But we do see that in our own day, it's just much like this. And we see the enemy feeling comfortable enough to raise their head. There's perversion all around us, lies all around us, compromise all around us. And Lord, we want to pray, would you please do us a favor and do something? We may feel like the psalmist, it seems like you're awfully quiet. And if that's because of our sin, then convict us and forgive us. If it's because the timing's just off, help us to wait upon you. But let us wait with our swords drawn. Let us wait with the armor on. Let us wait until the trumpet sounds. And may we stand strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Lord, we're desperate. Help us. Our own denomination is not really sure what the Word of God says about who can be a pastor. Well, if we're not clear on that, how are we going to fight the bigger issues? Forgive us, Lord. Politicians will say anything that we want to hear in order to get voted, and then they go to Washington and they forget all about what they promised. Forgive us, Lord. Then we see churches that are compromised, liberal, twisting the scripture, or maybe even ignoring the scripture. And then we wonder where the power is. Dear Lord, forgive us and renew us. And would you start right here, right now, tonight in us. To God be the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. And if you agree, would you say amen?